we're going to open with a word of prayer this morning. Just before we do, if you have your bulletin this morning, you can look at the back or you can turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. We'll read a verse together to open our time and hear the Lord's word as we get ready to enter in prayer. All right, 2 Peter chapter number 1, verse 2. I'll read verse 2 and let's all read verse 3 out loud together. Verse 2 says, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. All together, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Uh, John Dorsey, would you open our time together in prayer this morning? Good truth in those words this morning, and I hope that you could mean them as you sung them. That hymn's written, words that hymn are written about 350 years ago, um, but what is true does not change. And we're thankful we can trust our God, and whatever He ordains in our lives is right, whether we see it in that moment or not. We're going to see a little bit of that in our text in just a moment in Matthew 14. So if you would turn there this morning, Matthew chapter 14, we're going to see... The Lord ordained something that was right, but that was honestly probably confusing to many that followed Christ in the moment, but we can find truth in it. And as you find your place there, if you would uh, take a look at your uh, bulletin this morning and draw attention to a few things that we have coming up in our schedule. February 4th, upcoming Saturday, they, uh, we have our seniors conference at the Edge Christian Camp. If you have not signed up online or at the Welcome Center, make sure that you do so. And we do have a group that will be traveling together uh, for that. And so uh, if you need transportation, make sure you note that. And we'll get with you this week to make sure that all that is arranged as far as leaving time and uh, make sure that we're coordinated on that. And then uh, the next Saturday we have a men's breakfast. And we're going to have a, a time of fellowship together, spend some time in prayer as the men of our church, praying over our church and its ministries. And then talking about a few upcoming and some new opportunities, some things that we're going to do uh, as men to serve our church body in a few different ways. And so I hope that you'll plan on being a part of that uh, breakfast that morning at 9 o'clock. And then you see the Lord's Supper service and then a church-wide fellowship there on February 12th uh, with an early afternoon service to follow. And so uh, we're asking people to bring a main dish, a side, and a dessert. So some of our Fellowships will provide the meat and barbecue or all the food sometimes, but this time just asking each family to kind of bring a Sunday dinner with you. You can drop that off in the morning before you come in for worship, and then after we have our morning service, we'll head down and share uh, lunch together. So those are uh, some things upcoming in our church. Our membership class continues tonight, where our whole church membership is walking through this uh, together, and I know that we have a few that are coming for membership uh, next week, and if you're interested in that, uh, if you would, you can see myself or uh, one of the other staff or officers of the church, contact the office, and we'll set up a time to uh, meet with you on that, and uh, excited about uh, opportunity with several of you that are coming for membership. And then if you would, on the back, you would notice uh, the funeral arrangements for Margaret Watson. Uh, if you have not heard, Mrs. Watson passed away on Wednesday, 
and uh, she is with her Lord and Savior, and we're thankful for that. Uh, the, as the year went on, she spent about the last nine months or so in uh, the hospital and in care, and uh, which is very different for her. Valerie and I talked a little bit about it, that uh, she loved to serve others, and so uh, having to be served in that way was a little unusual for her, and she didn't enjoy it all the time. And uh, But as the days went by, and she often talked about uh, the Lord's control, that she knew she was in His hands, and this morning, very much in a physical sense, she is in His hands, and we praise the Lord for that. And you see there, uh, tomorrow evening, a family will receive friends at Nelson's from 6 to 8 uh, tomorrow night, and then the funeral will be this Tuesday at 10 o'clock, and that will be here in the auditorium. And so if you can be a part of that and encourage uh, Valerie and, and Bob and their family, Rob and the rest, uh, then I hope that you will do so. All right, look if you would at Matthew chapter 14. <clears throat> Matthew 14, and uh, we'll look in verse number 1. This is naturally breaks down, the portion of Scripture we're going to read today naturally breaks down into two sections, uh, but we're going to look at both of those this morning because I think that they are tied together more than we initially realize. And we're going to look at that today. Look at verse 1. It says, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch, just means he's a leader of a small uh, province. The Tetrarch part refers to kind of the area that he ruled or how much it was broken down to the segment or region that he was in charge of. So he heard of the fame of Jesus. And he said unto his servants, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. Why would he say that? Why would that be a big deal to Herod that, that he thought it might be John the Baptist? Verse number three. For Herod had laid hold on John and bound him and put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. For John said unto him, It is not lawful for thee to have her. And when he would have put him to death, he feared the multitude, because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was kept, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased them, pleased Herod. Whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask. And she, being before instructed of her mother, said, Give me John, here John the Baptist's head in a charger. And the king was sorry, nevertheless, for the oath's sake, and them which sat with him at meat, he commanded it to be given her. And he sent and beheaded John in prison, in the prison. And his head was brought in a charger and given to the damsel. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came, the ones that followed John the Baptist and uh, that had been with him out in the wilderness. It says, they came and took up the body, buried it, and went and told Jesus. And when Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them, and he healed their sick. And when it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a desert place, and the time is now past. Send the multitude away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals, food, meals. But Jesus said unto them, They need not depart, give ye them to eat. And they said unto him, We have here but five loaves and two fishes. And he said, Bring them hither to me. 
He commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass and took the five loaves and the two fishes. And looking up into heaven, he blessed and brake and gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up of the fragments that remained twelve baskets full. And they that had eaten were about five thousand men beside the women and children. Lord, we come to you this morning, and as we just sang, we declare by faith that all that you do is right. And that is difficult for us to understand. And as we look at this passage today, some of us are in a moment of life like the feeding of the 5,000. It's not so difficult for us to understand that everything that you do is right, because life is being blessed, and we are seeing Uh, your hand and guidance and your work in us spiritually, emotionally, even physically. Some of us are in a a feeding of the 5,000 moment. And and yes, we also declare that what you ordain is right. And others of us this morning are in a more difficult moment. Others of us, like the disciples of John the Baptist, are are grieving, are hurt, um, are suffering, are confused and uh, for one reason or another in life are dealing with pain. And so we pray that regardless of our circumstance, that our confession to you would be that we trust that whatever you do is right. And we will praise you for leading us to this from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. And the joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of knowing him, the joy of having a relationship with Him is not always the joy of the moments of life and the circumstances of life that bring us joy. Because let's be honest, sometimes life's circumstances stink. And um, as we walk through it, it can be difficult to find joy in a circumstance. But we can always find joy in our Savior. And so we're going to look to that again this morning in Matthew chapter 14. I'm not going to reread the entire passage this morning, but it is fairly straightforward. And it's fairly simple in what it relates to us. And so this morning, we're going to jump right into it and uh, look at these really kind of two sections, but they're joined, I think. They, they hold hands more than we realize. And so if you would, we're going to look there. Have you ever... There, have you ever stared? How many of you are, you'll be honest, and we'll see who the real honest people are. How many of you are unashamedly your people watchers? Whether it's in church, somewhere, and you read, yes, okay. Like you go, I, the, one of the, I was, you know, I am a people watcher. I can be. I try to be discreet about it and not creepy. But just things intrigue me at times. You know, if a kid's doing something super odd and weird out in public, I love to watch, you know, as I like the kid is at the at the uh, appliance store in the furniture store and he just found a bag of Doritos in the couch that somebody else left there and he's taking them out and eating. I don't stop that. I watch. I mean, that's awesome uh, to just watch life. And sometimes we stare at something and we know what it is. How many of you have ever stared at someone thinking, I know I know this person 
but I cannot think of where I know them from. Anyone? And you've done that? Okay, yeah, some of you do that. Some of you have done that this morning. You think, I cannot. That is your spouse. They came to church with you this morning. That's a good thing to remember. All right, so as you stare and you look at someone, you think, I just, I know, I know this person. I just cannot put it together. What's worse sometimes is when you stare at a person knowing you know them and you really have no idea who it is. That's when it can get really awkward. But I think that as Matthew, we've been studying the book of Matthew for a few months now, I think as Matthew has presented Jesus, he has done it in a way that has shown us that historically the way that people responded to Jesus in his day, physically seeing him, in a way is very similar to the way that people respond to Jesus today. When they can't necessarily visualize him, but they hear about him, they maybe read his word or hear a sermon or a lesson or they here's something about Jesus or the Lord. People stared at Jesus. They were in awe of him. And I mean that, that yes, they physically stared, but in, in the sense that their attention was captivated by Jesus. I mean, right from near the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, and we were told of wise men that come and are watching him. And then we're told as he begins his ministry and he calls the disciples, they don't know who in the world they're following at that point, but they're captivated by him. And something moves them to say yes and to, to give up life in a way and follow him. And then Jesus is taken out in the wilderness. He's tempted, but when he returns from that temptation, multitudes of people follow him up into the mountain and he teaches there for probably numbers of days on end in long sections. He's teaching. They're captivated by it. Then he works all these miracles that Matthew tells us about in Chapter 8 and 9, displaying his authority, his great might, that he is truly God. And then his miracles move him into this next couple chapters, 10 and 11, where he calls the disciples again, and now not just calling them to follow them, but now he's sending them out. And he sends them out two by two to do his work and to minister even apart from him for a while. Then we have these people in their response to Jesus, and we saw that some rejected him some received and accepted him but there was this ultimately for the most part there was a lot of confusion about Jesus they saw who he was they saw what he did they saw they heard what he taught but they did not understand what he had really come to do they did not understand what the Messiah was really supposed to be they were picturing a great king freedom from Rome food for all less or no taxes. I mean, they just, they wanted this kingdom with a king fixing all of their circumstances. That's what they desired. And they were not ready to receive Jesus until he had given them what they desired. And so they sort of rejected him. And then Jesus does this interesting thing we studied for a few weeks, the last several weeks in, in chapter 12, and then he goes into chapter 13, and he teaches in parables. And so those that believed were getting it. And those that would not believe were then even more confused by his teaching. And he says, he has tried to tell them, this is what the kingdom of God is. And they didn't get it. And so he illustrates it for them in these parables. He says, well, fine, you don't get what the kingdom of God is. Here's what the kingdom of God is like. And he gives them these parables. And then at, just after these parables, right in a row, Matthew gives us eight circumstances in which someone or a group of people are confronted with who Jesus really is, and he records their response 
to Jesus. Uh, the last time we were in Matthew, a couple weeks ago, we had a missionary last week, a couple weeks ago, we were finished out chapter 13, which Jesus goes back to his hometown. What did his hometown say about him? They had, they had been in the multitudes. They had heard him teach. They had seen the miracles. What they could not get past is that they couldn't explain it. Who is he? Where did this guy come from? We watched him live among us for 30 years. Where did he get the education to have such wisdom to teach? How does he have power to work miracles? He's just the son of Joseph and Mary. Ultimately, he's the son of a carpenter. We know his brothers and sisters. There is no way, ultimately what they're saying is, there's no way this is from God. There is something else that is indwelling him. Something else has taken over him, in essence. And they could not bring themselves, and there was unbelief because of their familiarity with Jesus. And now in chapter 14, we have, we're going to look at two more today. We're going to see Herod's response to Jesus. And we're also going to see a multitude go again out to Jesus and his response to them. I want you to think back through this morning as we look at the circumstances. We're going to really focus on this feast. We're going to call it the Feast of Compassion. Uh, this was not a celebrated Jewish festival or feast. It wasn't in the law and it wasn't their custom it was just sort of impromptu that Jesus holds a feast not to celebrate an event or a thing or a part of, his, a part of the Jewish religion, but to celebrate his compassion for his people, his care over them. And so as we walk through it, I want you to think about the circumstances around the feast. Because look, if you would, in verse 13, chapter 14, look at verse 13. When Jesus, what? Heard of it. So Jesus is, goes out to the wilderness, and he feed, ultimately there he ends up feeding 5,000 men and all of their families. He works a mighty miracle. In fact, it's one of only two miracles to be recorded in all four gospel accounts. The other one is the resurrection. So you have the resurrection from the dead is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the feeding of the 5,000. That's it. That's the only two miracles recorded in them all. So a big, significant, familiar miracle to us. But what is the circumstances surrounding that mighty miracle and Jesus working with these people? It says, well, when he heard of it. When he heard of what? Well, that takes us back to the first 12 verses. And in actuality, the way that Matthew goes back and tells us some of this, it's interesting. Look at verse number 1. It says, at that time Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus. So you have... It here described in just two simple verses, verse 1 and 2, how Herod responds to Jesus. He hears of the fame of Jesus, and in hearing of the fame of Jesus, he thinks it is John the Baptist resurrected from the dead. And why would that be so significant to him? Because he is the one that had John the Baptist put to death. Typically, if a murderer thinks the person that they have murdered is alive again, that's going to bring fear and concern. And so here is Herod concerned about this, so concerned that he does not see Jesus for who he is. He does not see Jesus as the Savior. It's interesting, I was studying this week, there's a, a Jewish historian that actually says that evidently John the Baptist and Jesus had a similar resemblance, they had a similar appearance, which would make sense. They're even related, and they're cousins, and so maybe they looked a little bit alike. And so as Herod hears about this, Maybe even here's the description of the man that's doing these mighty miracles. They think, he thinks John the Baptist is back and he's more powerful than he ever was. 
But I want you to look for a moment at the historical truth given to us. Why does Matthew give us this? Because here you have Jesus responding to his hometown and their response to him. You have Jesus feeding the 5,000. Peter walking, or, or Jesus going out on the sea and calming the, the sea. And then you have uh, his interactions with others. It, it just, Jesus doesn't actually interact here with Herod, does he? This portion of this section of Matthew is different than the other eight accounts of someone being confronted with the truth of Jesus. It's different because he never actually interacts personally with Jesus, at least not in the description. And so I want us to just look for a moment, and, and we'll just think about the historical truths. I'll just summarize for you again for a moment. Herod was Herod the Tetrarch. This is not the same Herod that was the king when Jesus was born. Uh, that portion of this authority, the regions and sort of the, the different uh, categories of rulership have even changed since Jesus was born. And you can study it out. Herod had two brothers that actually ruled uh, in, in a parallel way in other regions not too far away. So you have this man named Herod. He's specifically called Herod Antipas. And so here is Herod Antipas. And he has this interaction with John the Baptist. And to summarize what Scripture tells us, verse 3 down through verse number 12, and to give you a little bit of the historical background of it, tells us that Herod has divorced his wife. His wife's name was Phasaelus. He divorces his wife, and his wife is actually, I, I don't know if you call her a princess of sort, her dad is a king as well of a different region. And so he divorces his wife, puts her away, and he marries another woman. And it's, it gets even more odd because the woman is his other brother's wife. Now his other brother is not dead. His other brother is alive, ruling as a small little mini-king in a different region. So he divorces his wife, sends her away, marries his sister-in-law, I guess you would say at this point, and John the Baptist hears about this, and he confronts it publicly. He preaches about it, and, and it doesn't tell us exactly what he said about it. It doesn't tell us what John the Baptist's purpose was, but I think as John the Baptist is calling the Jewish people who are kind of trying to decide, do we put our trust in Rome? Do we put our trust in our leaders? Do we put our trust in our rulers? Do we try to work in this way? What do we do? And John the Baptist is preaching. You can only imagine that he's saying, look at this one who calls himself a Jew and rules over the Jews for the Roman people, for the Roman Empire. Look at him. Look at what he has done. He's defiled even marriage within himself. And he's married his sister-in-law. And he's preaching this. Well, it starts to get out. And for some reason, Herodias, which is the sister-in-law that he marries, she's offended by it. She's bothered by it. She doesn't want <clears throat> the tabloid of John the Baptist to share all of her secrets, I guess, with the kingdom, although it was very well known. And so she has a daughter. Her daughter's name, we know that historically, uh, is Salome. Salome is how you say her name. And so she goes in and she is dancing before Herod at Herod's birthday. And the mother, being the great planner that she was, says, if he asks you a favor in reward for your dancing, and it is clear that it is a sensual type of dancing in the way that it says that she pleased Herod, and he says, if, she, if he offers you something, and I want you to ask for John the Baptist's head, and he gives him in specific, on a platter. I want it to be served up in an embarrassing way. It's a pretty vile story. It's a pretty awful situation. There's more that we know about it historically, but that's the, that's the basic of what we just summarized. Why, 
Why is that dropped right in the middle of Matthew 14? Just think about it for a moment. What good do we have in this story other than it tells us why Jesus was going to be alone? But there's plenty of other places in Scripture that it doesn't give us the specifics as to why Jesus was going to be alone. He does it actually quite often. Why do we need to know that in this circumstance? It's interesting that here Jesus actually ministers out of his grief and hearing of the death of his cousin. But I think that there's something a little more. If you notice the structure and how Matthew presents it, who has Matthew been trying to point us to the entire time? That Jesus is God. He is the Son of God. He is the real Messiah. He is the real King. He's the best ruler. He's the perfect ruler. He is the King of the universe and over all things. Notice the comparison between these two situations. I've kind of jotted them out, and you can put your own little chart as you like, but I want you to notice there's some truths that the kingdom teaches us. It says that the kingdom's foolishly rejected and will be. The kingdom often requires a sacrifice, as John the Baptist was giving himself for the kingdom, but that ultimately the kingdom will not be overcome by evil. It's a horrible thing that John the Baptist lost his life. But we know that ultimately he continued to live by his eternal life given in Jesus Christ. And we can remember that no pain and no trouble will, of life will outlast the goodness of God. But I also want you to think about this and look at these two human kingdoms and Christ's kingdom side by side. On the human kingdom side, you have a self-consumed king who is throwing a feast for himself. He is hyper overconscious about what everyone thinks. I mean, just so conscious. Remember, he doesn't like that John is preaching against him, and he wants to put him to death, is what Matthew 14 says. He, he wants to put John the Baptist to death, but who does he fear? But he fears the multitude, so he won't put him to death. And then it goes further, and he's made this request, and now there's influence of all these other leaders around him that are there for his birthday party, and his niece, I guess it would be, his sister-in-law that he has now married, his daughter, which is niece, is dancing at this party, and he makes a promise to her. She asked John the Baptist, and now it says that he was sore about it. He did not want to put him to death now, but he does, because he is influenced by all of those that are around him. So in the human kingdom, you have a self-consumed ruler who throws a feast for himself, hyper-conscious about what everyone else thinks. He's influenced by a suggestion of wrongdoing. He's consumed with lust. And what he serves at this feast, ultimately, is death. There's eventual suffering and there's loss that is displayed. So he said, when you follow the kingdoms of men, what do you get? Selfish, prideful, broken rulers, consumed with what others think of them, influenced even against their own will and what they think might actually be wrong, but they don't want to displease those that they are trying to gain clout or authority with, and so they bend to the rule of others, so they're actually not rulers with authority. They are puppets being directed about, and ultimately, what does that serve the people? It serves the head of a righteous man murdered on a platter. And then you have the comparison with, acute, with, this, with Christ's kingdom, in which you have, in this portion, verse 13 through 21, what do you have? A selfless king who goes to be alone, not throwing a feast for himself. He is willingly followed by those that he leads, rather than Herod, who has to call those to himself and by 
fear make and rule over them, but those that desire to follow Jesus as he leads. When he looks at the people, he is not moved by fear, like Herod, but he is moved with compassion. And his response to the people is not to bend to every whim and desire, but he heals them and he teaches them. And then it is a suggestion is given to them, to Jesus. A suggestion that says, send them away. Remember, Herod gets a suggestion, put John the Baptist to death, and he bends to it and he follows it. Jesus has made a practical suggestion. We have no food. There's a lot of people. Send them away so they can get food. And Jesus does not have to bend to the suggestion. He doesn't need to send them away. But rather, he, rather than take from them and tax for his own gain, like the people were used to from their human king, he uses a very little and then serves them food and life. And they have it. They're filled with abundance. You see the comparison that he's giving? He says, you want a human king. It leads to death. You want Christ as your king. It leads to life. The stark contrast between these two. And as, as easy as that choice sounds for us, think about it for a moment. Which kingdom is our life more wrapped up in? The kingdoms of men? And I don't mean like you're elected as an official or you're a ruler or a monarch or you're tied up in some sort of actual authority. I just mean the systems of this world. Are we tied up in them? Like Herod, are we consumed with them? Do we move and bend to their every whim and suggestion even when it's not the desire of our hearts and we're moved not to do something wrong, but yet it influences us? And at its suggestion, we bend to it because we fear, as Herod does, the multitude. Where does that get us, even as Christians? It leads to destruction and death. Those kingdoms take and steal and destroy. They consume things for themselves. They build up so that they will gain riches. They are not there for you. And I'm not speaking of some ambiguous group of people or rulers right now. I just mean anything that you make your king of your life other than Jesus Christ will lead this way. It does not matter. It can be a great person. You, you can place your marriage. You can place your relationship as parents. You can put your desire to do good things with physical assets and even serve the Lord in that way. Even desire for certain aspects of physical ministry or your job or whatever it is that you're doing. Anything that you follow and serve outside or above Jesus Christ leads to this type of destruction. Only Jesus gives life. And so you have this comparison and it leads us and it points us, verse 13 and 14, notice, it leads us and points us to the compassion of Jesus. You may think that if we could just hang on for a little while, I can serve Jesus in a better way. But that excuse never works. Look at verse 13. So when Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. So he leaves this region of Galilee and Capernaum. He's been in Nazareth, Capernaum, and uh, different places on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And it's a very small body of water, relatively small body of water, eight miles across in most places, depending on where he was. He could have just been going across the tip or cutting a corner of the lake or wherever. It doesn't tell us exactly where it was that he was going. But he leaves, and notice it says he went there to be apart. He went there to be alone. 
I think, probably moved by the grief of the death of his own cousin and John the Baptist, perhaps also pointing in his own mind. He is about a year away from his crucifixion in Jerusalem. And so it's setting in for Jesus as he sees physically John lose his life, maybe even makes him contemplate on his own. And so he goes to be away, whether it is to pray, to contemplate, to be alone, to grieve. The Bible doesn't speak exactly to it, but he goes to be alone. Notice verse 13, end of it. And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. So multitudes come out of their city and they, they, they walk around the Sea of Galilee. They kind of meet him. must not have been too much of a windy day that day because when Jesus gets there, Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude uh, and was moved with compassion toward them. Other portions of Scripture tell us as he arrives and steps off the boat that there's a multitude of people there waiting for him. Notice it says in verse 14 in the end, he was moved with compassion toward them and he healed their sick. So we see two things. We see Jesus' humanity in his desire to be alone in a moment of grief and wisdom. We see these people follow him and yet he's moved with compassion and he heals and he teaches. Mark 6, 34 tells us that he was moved, the same account of the same miracle, it tells us why Jesus was moved with compassion. It says he saw them as sheep having no shepherd, which is also interesting. Because here is this group of people who are supposed to have this leader that's watching out for them, their human king, Herod, who is consumed with himself and ultimately sins and puts a righteous man to death. And Jesus looks out at these people and why is he moved with compassion? Because they have no king. They have no leader. They have no shepherd. They have no one to guide that puts their interest, that is looking out for their good, and he sees them, and he's moved with compassion. This is not a domineering God who wants to come and control someone's life just to make them miserable, to prove that he has authority and power. God does not think of his people that way. He loves and in compassion desires to move them and to move them toward himself. And so as he does this miracle, it's, there's multiple layers to it. It's not just that he wants to feed them physical bread. He wants to point them to who he is. He tells them in other places, I am the bread of life. All that Jesus does in his teachings and then in his parables and even in his miracles, especially in the book of Matthew, are laid out for us in a way that they teach us something about his character and nature. They point us to who Jesus really is. And so we're going to see that. I want you to notice as we look at the final point, the identity of Jesus. What do we learn about Jesus himself in this miracle? And there's some things you can, we could go and we could read each of the other accounts. There's some little differences that are mentioned here. We're told of the five loaves and two fishes, but we're not told of the little lad who's the one that gave that to the disciples. It just says, this is all that we have gathered together. And so there's some details that are a little different here. I just, but I just want to focus on just this account this morning. I want you to think about a couple things as we wrap up and, and apply in our own minds. I want you to notice that first what you see, the big picture. There's some big picture of the miracle and then it kind of funnels downward. In the big picture, in its simplest form, you have this. You have a problem that is turned into a solution. A problem for which Jesus offers the solution. In this big picture of all of these people, it says that they're out in a desert place. A desolate place is the word that it would use. 
and even if they were near towns and cities. Notice when the disciples recommend Jesus, we should send them back. Notice it says, so they can go into the villages, plural, and find food. This is a very common thing that people, there was a lack of food amongst this particular region of Israel underneath Roman rule for a number of reasons and a number of things. You couldn't just go to the market, and as the day comes to a close, you know, they didn't have street lamps, they didn't have lights outside. These small little towns, they're not hustling and bustling until 9, 10, 11, 12 at night, you know, and you travel and you get off the exit and you think, man, we should have stopped for dinner, you know, us men that are driving along as we travel, and I don't want to stop, I don't want to stop, I don't want to stop, and your wife suggests it's 7 o'clock, we should stop somewhere if we want to eat something decent for dinner. No, 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 I want to get a little further. Midnight comes, 1 in the morning, and it's, you know, the Wendy's in the truck stop with, has food from last week, and that's all that you have, you know? They, they didn't even have that option, right? As they're going to be dismissed, it is nighttime. It's closed. It's people's houses. They haven't eaten all day. There's nowhere for them to go. This is a problem. It's a natural problem. It's a logistics problem. It's a problem just like you and I might face in our life. And the disciples responded different, differently. They have this big multitude, and there's no answer for their general physical need. Now, the truth is most of them are not. If it's just been a day, most of them are not going to pass out. They're not going to die of starvation. It's not a giant problem. I mean, think about it. One of the most magnificent miracles physically displayed that Jesus works was to fix, I'll, I'll use the term, an insignificant problem. Like, most likely, they could have made it till the next day. They'd have been just fine. They haven't been weeks without food. But it shows that Jesus cares even about the smallest of our issues, the smallest of our stresses, the, the, the simplest of our difficulties, that Jesus sees into them and he recognizes them and that he acts upon them. But notice the disciples' response. Verse 15. When it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a desert place. Time has now passed, meaning it's, it's time to go. The sun's going down. Send the multitude away that they may go into villages and buy themselves food, victuals, m meals. I have heard this particular verse preached and even written on this way, that the disciples were only consumed for themselves. It shows the disciples' selfishness. It shows that they were only thinking about their own lives and that they were tired. They didn't share Jesus' burden for the people. And in meanness and bitterness, they try to send the people away. I don't think it reads that way. Here's the disciples. They just see an actual physical problem and they make a recommendation based on how they should naturally respond. Jesus, everyone is here and they have not eaten. It was sort of impromptu multitude gathering. They have not eaten. We have no food. Let's send them somewhere that they can get food. Jesus, the day's gotten away from us. We've been teaching. Everyone's been listening. It's been a good day of sermons. It's been a good day of teaching. I think the people have responded really well. Maybe you haven't noticed that we, we have a few, we got caught up in teaching. Maybe we have a few moments of daylight. Let's send them away while we can so they can get something to eat. I don't think the disciples are doing anything wrong or sinful here. They're simply responding based on their natural limitations. They can't make food. They can't work a miracle. And so based on their own natural limits, they make a recommendation. The glorious part of this is that as Jesus is confronted by a legitimate problem, he's not limited by any natural process or solution. We face sometimes our own difficult circumstances in life, don't we? Maybe this morning, 
you're facing a difficult circumstance. And let me tell you, Jesus is not limited by your limitations or your needs. As we look at this problem that has turned into a solution, here's the wonderful thing about all of our problems. They are not God's problems. They're not Jesus' problems. And I, what I mean by that, don't, don't hear me like, oh, they're callous, God and Jesus don't care about our problems. What I mean by that is, what is a problem for us <laughs> is not a problem for him. What is a bad issue for us? What is a great need that we cannot solve? Our natural limitations, they don't hold anything with Jesus. That he is bound by nothing that we are bound by. And our hard circumstances don't limit God's ability. We don't have to know how God will solve or how God can solve our problems in order to be confident that he will solve them. We don't face trouble. We never face a trouble that is above Christ's ability to handle. How long we have to wait, how long we have to face them, how long until he delivers us, only he knows. And sometimes that's the difficulty, is waiting and not being able to fix it ourselves. And I may be speaking to a variety of issues and problems. That's the wonderful thing about God's word and the Holy Spirit this morning. You may have, like them, a small, physical, insignificant problem. But for you, it's what's consuming your thoughts and your minds right now. It was a very consuming issue for them. Small, insignificant, not a big deal. They haven't eaten today. We can get it taken care of later. Not a huge thing, but it's captivating their minds. And sometimes small problems, one piled, one right on top of the other of our life, create tremendous stress, don't they? And some of you this morning, your problem is not insignificant. It's not just that you haven't eaten today. It is that you're facing another crisis of life. A huge issue within your own soul, within a relationship with someone else, a family member that is deeply hurt, that is struggling, and, and you look at the problem and don't see the solution. But it does not mean that it's not there. It's found in Jesus Christ. So notice it refines down a little bit more specifically. Their problem is turned into a solution. Their hunger is turned into satisfaction. Notice Verse 16, they don't need to go away, Jesus says. They don't need to depart. Give them to eat. And they say unto him, we have here but five loaves and two fishes. And he said, bring them hither to me. He commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass, took the five loaves and two fishes. Looking up to heaven, he blessed and break, gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. And they did all eat, notice this phrase, and were filled. They all ate and they were all satisfied. Now, this is a physical, you know, physical display of what Jesus can do on a deeper level. Because the truth is, a lot of you are going to leave this morning in a few minutes, and you're going to go out, you're going to eat at a restaurant, you're going to go home, somebody's going to prepare something, you're going to eat something, and you're probably going to eat, and you're probably going to be filled. Ooh, boom, big miracle. No, it's not just speaking to the fact that Jesus can fill people's stomachs, but that he can fill their souls. Matthew doesn't mess around with his pictures. Remember, he thinks about them on a deep level, a deep layer. Remember back in Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, that he is led out into the wilderness, and that he is tempted of Satan, and that he stands up against Satan. And then when he comes back, he goes through the Jordan River and is baptized, and it kind of pictures the perfection of the Exodus that was in the Old Testament. And there's deep layers to it. Here you have Jesus taking a multitude out into the wilderness, they have no food, and Jesus provides for them. 
He gives it to them. Matthew's not making a mistake here. He is showing and giving a picture just like God provided in the wilderness for his people before. He now provides for them again in the wilderness, but not just on a physical level, on a spiritual level. He is giving them the bread of life. It is Jesus standing before them. They have a hunger in their, not just in their stomachs, but they have a hunger in their soul, a desire to be filled and to be satisfied by a relationship with their creator. And now the answer is standing before them. Yes, giving them physical bread, but far more than that. In fact, if you, we won't turn there for time's sake today. If you turn to this account in John, I believe it's in chapter number six, they, they go on, Jesus feeds the 5,000 and the multitude keep following him for a few days. And they keep asking him about food. He keeps trying to teach them other stuff. And they keep asking about food. And they even bring this up. The people bring the people recognize this picture because here's what they bring up. Well, even our fathers were given manna every day in the wilderness in the time of Moses. So they see it as well. And Jesus' answer to them is, you don't need someone to give you physical bread every day. You need someone to satisfy your souls. I believe it was Augustine that said, in our hearts there's a, a God-shaped void that only he can fill, that only he can satisfy. And so, yes, they're filled physically, but it pictures what Jesus offers to us spiritually. And you say, well, maybe that's a little bit of a stretch. Where do you see that picture? Matthew's going to tell us in just a few chapters. I believe it's in chapter 26. Jesus is going to sit down with his disciples again, but there's not going to be a multitude around him. He's going to be alone. He's going to take a piece of bread and he's going to break it just like he does here. And he's going to bless it and pray over it just like he does here. And yet this time when he hands it to them, he's not just feeding them physically. He says to them, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. Take this drink, this is my blood spilled and shed for you. I am giving you something that will satisfy the hunger, not of your stomach, but of your soul. And this morning as a Christian, sometimes we look at the problems, physical problems of our lives, and we are limited in what we can see and understand. And yet Jesus is trying to satisfy us with a deeper hunger, a deeper satisfaction that he designed for us to have. And notice, alas, he turns their poverty into provision. It says that they have very little. This was a common occurrence. Studied a lot this week. It talked about the huge despair of this time period between the upper elites and the rulers of this particular region, the heavy taxes, the inability of the people to work and provide for themselves in certain ways, and how things were taken away from them. And so there was a lot of disparity between those that were ruling and the actual people. And so you have this physical king that has everything he needs in the first 12 verses, and now you have a multitude of people that have nothing. There's a statement in a miracle about the mindset and spirit of God's kingdom. We often think that we know what God needs in order to accomplish a task. We often think, this is the issue of my life. When God does this, that will be fixed. God does something very different. God uses very little to make and provide very much. Our poverty, and I don't just mean in our bank account or our lack of something physically, but it's in general, our inability, our spiritual poverty is never enough to impede God's riches. It's never enough to stop God's work. And you could say, they say to them here, Lord, we physically have nothing. Let's send them somewhere else to find the answer. And Jesus says, the answer is right here. And we do the same thing spiritually in our lives. We look out at the world 
I look at everything around us and we say, what I need is this. What I need is out there. Or we say of ourselves, we're so guilty and broken by our sin that we don't ever think that Jesus can work in us. He can't get past this. I'll never be able to accomplish this for him. I'll never be this kind of Christian. You don't know the guilt, the shame that I'm dealing with, the valuelessness of my own life. And he says, I am not bound by your lack. I am not bound by your need. I am not bound by your poverty. I can give you so much more. As a Christian, we should believe these things. Follow them. I think the significance, you say, verse 17, it says, they say unto him, we have here five loaves and two fishes. And I've read this week many people that try to put some significance on those two. Well, what are the significance of the five and two? I heard one said, the five uh, loaves, that is the, uh, or, yeah, yeah, the five um, loaves, that is the five Old Testament books. It's the Torah. It's the five books of the law. And the two fish are the two ordinances of the church and the sacraments of the church. It's baptism and the Lord's Supper. And it's showing that when they come together, God's Old Testament law with God's new covenant with the church, that those five and two become seven. And that's the number of perfection. Let's not say what the Bible doesn't say. Here's the significance of five loaves and two fishes. That doesn't feed 5,000 people. <laughs> Here's the significance of the number. It's very small. <laughs> And the number in need is very great. And yet at the center of it, here's what I want you to notice, the last, that Jesus is at the center of it all. And that though something is small, and though the need is great, and though the need in a way is insignificant, and yet it captivated their minds and they had no actual solution for it. At the center of it all stands Jesus, the provider. The multiplying is done by Jesus the, the miracle is actually done by Jesus. But notice, he almost patterns it for us. He gives it to his disciples. He says, here, disciples, I'm going to give you what the people need. You take it to them and provide for them. And in a way, he's given us as a church the gospel message, and we now carry it to others. It's a picture of what Jesus does in such a large level. He saw the need. He satisfied the hungry. He provides for those that had little with absolutely nothing. They look around and say, who's going to solve this problem? Who's going to satisfy our hunger? Who's going to provide for our need? And the answer is the same. It is Jesus. It's interesting. The people look to the disciples and they have no answer. The world looks to the church and Christians. And the answer is not in us, but it is in Christ. We're often drawn to the spectacle of the leftover that each disciple had a full basket. Some saying it was a basket for each of the disciples. Some saying it was a basket for each of uh, the 12 tribes of Israel and that he still loved them. So here's the point. Very little provided for a great need and there was much, much left over, meaning Jesus abundantly provides and fills. We're to be in awe of Jesus exactly as he is. Our help comes from him. He's the creator of a new people. He's the good shepherd. He's the king and the Messiah. He said, no one needs to go. I can provide right here in this moment. I want you to think for a moment as we close, apply to your own life. What's the need of your heart? What's the need of your life? Jesus is the answer. If you're not a Christian this morning, the gospel call is to you to come. Come, find rest for your soul. Find salvation in him. Only he fills the, satisfi the, the need of the satisfying of your soul the need and desire of a relationship with Jesus Christ, your creator. 
If you're a Christian this morning, the call is no different. If the needs of your life are not the circumstances of your life being solved by Jesus, that's, that's not it. He will take care of those things. But it is that in the deepest and darkest circumstances of life, He can still satisfy the soul if there's relationship with Him. Take of His blessing and never have need again. How does Jesus provide for us? What does He give? We're going to speak about that in the weeks to come. But I want to ask you this morning, are you feasting and feeding on Jesus? God not only knows our deepest hungers, but He made them. He created them. The gnawing, nagging feeling of dissatisfaction in your life, even when things are great and perfect and everything is well and you're healthy and you have riches and relationships are good, there's still a hole there, isn't there? You meet and you talk to people out that life seems to be going well, but there's just something missing. That's not a mistake that God fixes. That is a craving that God created in you. And He created it so that He could then satisfy it. And He means to meet that need only through faith, by grace in this one Jesus Christ. And so let's commit that to Him. Father, we are thankful for Your Word this morning. And uh, I know that we have people here in the auditorium this morning that they're grieving like the like the disciples of John the Baptist, like Jesus himself. And uh, we were struggling to see that you work good and right. And so humbly we kneel before you this morning and we just confess. You don't have to make us understand. We confess that we don't understand. But we're asking to help you trust us trust you. Some of us are facing need in life. Some of us, it's an insignificant need, but we're thankful that this passage teaches us that you care even about the small things, even about the meal we haven't had today, even about something that we, something small we can't provide on our own in the moment. You care about those, but you also care about the deep longing and craving of our hearts. And so whether they're, we're here this morning and there's someone that's not a Christian. God, I pray that you'd work in their hearts and lives. Move them to follow you. Move them to find that only you satisfy. We ask that in a Christian's lives this morning, those of us that have claimed you, that we would not come to you for salvation and then walk away for every other circumstance of life, but that we would find our satisfaction in you. You are the bread of life. May we feast on you daily. Give us, Lord, our daily bread. And so we ask that we follow, find rest and hope and joy in you. Regardless of circumstance or pain, we're thankful that we see this morning your compassion, your care, and your power, your work. And we pray that you would show us both today. In Jesus' name. Stand if you would. And we'll sing familiar song to us near the cross as we sing here at this altar there at your seat if you're a Christian the Lord is working in your heart by his Holy Spirit commit to the Lord to feast with him every day to come to Christ in his word to pray to find rest and satisfaction in him and him alone what the world offers it serves up death and darkness
Jesus gives bread and life. If you're not a Christian this morning, you've never tasted of the Lord's goodness and grace, I encourage you to come now. We'll have someone take you aside and explain how you can know for sure that you are found in Christ, that you know the Lord as your Savior. And you can find us after, but don't delay. Let's sing this morning and praise the Lord for it. On the river. Amen. How many of you, I don't think it would be too invasive to ask, how many of you have a need in your life this morning? Small, big, great, and you need to take it to Jesus as well. Yeah, all of us have needs. We need to take it to Him and find that rest in Him. Jesus, we find our satisfaction first in who Jesus is before we can ever find it in what He does. And so we ask Him to work in our lives. How many of you, you have somebody in your life and you say, they need Christ? And you raise your hand. And we trust that to Him as well. And we take it to them. He gave the disciples a part in taking the bread and extending it. And He's given us our part as well. And so we ask Him to help us do that. Brother Dowdy, would you close us in prayer?